Welcome to the What's a Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. What's good, revolutionaries? I hope all is well with you as we are mired in weeks and weeks of a pandemic. I send you grace and love and peace and hope that your family is safe and healthy. I want to give a shout out to my frat brother and to my sons, Brian McMillan. He lost his aunts and his father due to this terrible virus. And I want to send out my condolences and my heartfelt love to my good fraternity brother of Omega Sci-Fi. Brother, we are here for you. We reach out to you. We reach our hands out to you, always knowing that we lift as we climb. Dear brother, we are with you. There are so many people around our country that are mourning the loss of their family members. And we here at What's a Revolution want you to know that we are with you. We send out our love, our light, our grace to you. So many people that look like me, so many people of color, so many African-American people are losing their lives because of this disastrous virus. And it was interesting because at the beginning, we kept saying, Black folks can't get this. We, you're seeing that nobody Black has this. Well, that dialogue changed. And what we're seeing in our communities is that it is ravaging us, that depending on the community, more than 70% of the people who have died from the coronavirus are African-American. That's a problem. And so I wanted to bring one of the top-notch doctors in the country to talk with me here at What's Your Evolution about what we can do and how we can save our communities, not only from coronavirus, but from other negative experiences that hamper us from thriving in our communities and our households. So I bring to my revolutionaries, my people, Dr. Maurice Scholes, MD, PhD, principal. <laughs> that's right, I want to say that again. MD, PhD, principal of Scholes Consultant. Dear brother, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Great to be here, man. Thank you for inviting me. It is an honor. Dear brother, you know, we've known each other curse for you as we have traversed through these New Orleans streets. <laughs> I miss them, mm-hmm, don't you? Mm-hmm. I, I miss those oh, New Orleans. Oh, my God. <laughs> I miss we are active and connected people here. And active and connected people shut in their houses away from everybody else and away from all of their events and things are unhappy people. <laughs> unhappy people. And let me tell you, Maurice throws one hell of a party. <laughs> Your house is brutal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What is the parade? Don't you see? People going to hate me because I don't know the parade. What is Trudy, the parade? Trudy Boo. That is Trudy right. Boo is the parade. It's at the beginning of the carnival season. It's one of the first big ones and it goes past my house. And I have a couple of people over to watch. Just a couple of people over to watch the show. I was happily invited this year for the first time and enjoyed myself immensely. So I appreciate the invite. But like we said, we miss these streets. We miss our people. New Orleans, like you said, the fabric of it is the blood and blood and sweat of New Orleanians, right? And mm-hmm. although mm-hmm. I am not from New Orleans, I've been here 15 years. So somehow I pricked myself and found some found some of that New Orleans water and blood and got in me. You know what I'm saying, bro? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But, but you know, and I think that's an excellent, excellent point. You know, most of the stuff, Sean, I go say all this stuff that people love about New Orleans because of black folks. And, <laughs> and, and, and not superficially, black folks are the Mardi Gras Indians that make these works of art that they wear once or twice a year. Black folks are behind the second line crews that liven up our Sundays for many, many months of the year. 
black folks are behind the recipes and the culinary things that make us get fat and happy. Black folks are behind jazz, which was born here. And so this city is really what it is because of black culture. So I think that's one thing that we should never forget as we move through the process of businessifying everything and homogenizing everything and making everything Cleveland. Nothing against Cleveland. I said my best friends are from Cleveland. But what makes this city stand out is the contribution culturally and personally black people. Yes, yes. You know, I think about... I know you've probably been to back of town. My uh, my brother Alonzo Knox, man, who's who started Black Owned mm-hmm, Coffee mm-hmm. Shop here, and has really brought mm-hmm. community right there on Basin Street. And just thinking mm-hmm. about that, he and Ajax with Magnolia Yoga Studio, you know, bringing yeah. Black culture into the back into the neighborhood, the vibrancy of of business that we saw so long ago and that has been pushed out. Right. And mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. and how we're trying to bring back that black vibrancy uh, and support what is what is black here in New Orleans. I miss it so much. I cannot. Mm-hmm. I can't. But I you cannot. know, the, the, go ahead, brother. I can't let that point go without without sort of speaking to something that really is quintessential New Orleans. Ajax that runs that yoga studio has a whole following. One of the young ladies in that following is actually a clinical epidemiologist. Mm. And just an all-around badass that I didn't get to know her because of her profession at first, but I met her socially. That's New Orleans. Yes. And through meeting Sunita Singh socially, I have blossomed and grown so much as a professional. I've applied for a clinical scholars fellowship that I could not have done without her. And I, and I, and I, I say that to underscore that all of these professional things that are important to me, my resume, me making a living, really started with me just meeting and connecting with people. And so I, I give a shout out to places like Ajax Studio, to places like Back of Town, because they are businesses, but they are businesses that drive our community to come together. And that's what we need in these times of COVID, whether we are together in person or together apart. Man, let me tell you, and I know, man, that is those are wonderful points. Doc, and I think that you, you've talked about because we still have the ability to come together and virtual sessions, as we, you and I talked about in the green room, have become the standard of the day. And what I'm seeing is that our communities are still robust because we're finding other ways to hear music. I know you uh, saw D Nice a couple of weeks ago and how he, was, how he was bringing community together, but let's bring it down. Let's bring it down, Doc. When you see Rod Smooth, right, putting it on, our local mm-hmm. New Orleans DJ who puts it, mm-hmm. who puts it mm-hmm. down, or Rockaway puts it down on Instagram. Manny Fresh was spinning blocks away from my house. It took everything in me not to go <laughs> run down the street and press my face against the window. <laughs> I see any man that can give us the bounce version of Anita Baker. No one in the world and spin that in to back that thing up. Man, come on. Man, look. <laughs> it is. I, it I, is. I know there's a God. There is. There is. And, and look, and that God, look, even though tragedy new tragedy happens in New Orleans, we somehow know that God still smiles on us, dear brother. And I appreciate, mm-hmm. look, I appreciate you bringing me back home for a second. Maurice, we mm-hmm. ask, mm-hmm. we ask everybody on this show, you know, and what I think is the most thought provoking question of their life. What's your revolution? Mm-hmm. You know, my revolution is equity. I, it took me a while to get to that. But what really motivates me is not just equity for myself, but equity for people like me. And I choose equity over fairness because fairness doesn't really get at what I want. I'm not seeking to make people be decent, even though that would be nice. I'm seeking for people to acknowledge, provide for, 
and be what they're supposed to be as a human to other people that are being, acting like, and doing what they're supposed to be as a human. That equitable exchange, be it professional, be it personal, be it spiritual, be it empathic, that's what I'm really about. And that's something that as I approach my 50th anniversary on this ball going around the sun, what really motivates me professionally and personally. Man, that is beautiful. That is, and I love how eloquently you put that because most people can't talk about eloquent, equity that eloquently. Why can't I get it out? You know, <laughs> equity and eloquence. See, here we go. Mm -hmm. Doc, why is equity so hard? It's a, it's a small word. It's, um, it's a six-letter word, right? And when I'm talking about mm -hmm. equity, I tell everybody, like, equity is a six-letter word, but it's the hardest work you'll ever have to do. Why is it so hard? Mm -hmm. It's hard because equity really requires you to erase privilege. It requires you, in some cases, to erase history. It requires you to erase lineage. All those things that people use to judge themselves against another and deem themselves worthy, equity sort of pushes to the side. So no one wants to push to, push to the side things that they think make them stand out or deserve more first. Mm, right. The second thing is for you to have equity, you have to have empathy. That means you have to appreciate that there's a perspective and a way and a path that maybe you and nobody you know has personally walked, but it's valid. If you can't do that part one or that part two, you can't really get to equity. And I think that's really why it's so hard. Right. Right. You're having to think about giving. People don't like to give up stuff, right? Mm -hmm, you think about, mm -hmm, you think about mm -hmm. the power dynamics and the structures that have been placed historically in our country and in power structures across the world. People don't mm -hmm. like to give up power and they don't like to acknowledge that power actually exists. And those power dynamics are in mm -hmm. place to disrupt the lives of others. Mm -hmm. And so, but you know, my push, my push back to that a little bit, Charles. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, um, go ahead, brother. Is is that I want to reframe equity as requiring somebody to give up something. Yes, it sort of minimizes your privilege, but when a world is truly equitable, that comes back just as much as it goes out. Mm, mm, um, explain that. You know, tell me, tell me and, a little bit more. Go ahead. So, if you and I are both working towards a project to make our communities better. I have an organization, you have an organization. I don't have to give up my identity and my accomplishments to make you better. I simply have to marry what I'm doing to your mission, what you're doing, in a way that recognizes your strength, recognizes my strength, mm -hmm. and gives us both access to stuff that we've earned. Right. That's equity. You know, that that's how we do something where it doesn't require me to diminish you to stand tall. It doesn't require you to make yourself small for me to feel big. It doesn't require that. And it also requires for me to understand what did you have to go through to get your business and your, your, your contribution to that point? What did I have to go to get my business or my contribution to that point? And whether or not those paths are the same, whether or not those paths were equally open to both of us. We both walked a path that was valid and recognizing that gives us that empathy and recognizing elevating you doesn't take away from me. I think that's, that's where I get with the equity part. Right, right. No, and I understand that. And the key word that keeps resonating with me, Doc, is that word empathy. Mm -hmm. Do you think that empathy is innate or can we, can we actually train people to be more empathetic about the lived and lived experiences of other people? I've struggled with that, man. And I don't know if that's something that's personal or cultural. I will say here, our American ethos is very un-egalitarian, to use a big old fancy word, <laughs> to make sure we remind folks we have a PhD up in here. No, we in America were taught to be rugged individuals. 
that hang our shingle and, and pull our family together, throw them in a wagon and go out west and conquer something. You know, we applaud the person that stands on his own two feet and makes his way. Now, that narrative ignores who was already out west when we got there and what did we take from them. That narrative ignores who built the shoes or the jeans you're standing your legs on and in. I mean, so there's, there's things with that problem, but all of those things that really focus on individual achievement, accomplishment, and individuality really go against some of the things that you have to be willing to do to be empathetic. For example, to be empathetic means you nor anybody around you has to have lived something for you to see it as valid. So to, to bring in transgender things is, is something. I'm not transgender. I don't have any close friends that are transgender. But that's not required for me to see that particular pathway in life as valid. And those people are human. That's empathy to me. I, I'm sitting here because I'm like, this brother is super smart. But you're, you're exactly right. And Because <laughs> I'm like, wow. I mean, sometimes it's, it's kind of like, I'll, I'll call it the Michael Jordan effect, Doc. Like, you're sitting here mm-hmm. like, wait. Who's on my show, right? <laughs> that's that's exactly what was what was happening. I'm, I'm listening to you talk. As I think about this, is a show for black men, right? You know, and the people yeah, who love yeah. them. So th- th- it disperses. Yeah. It, it but it's just a show for black men. And I begin to think about yeah. empathy and, and and going back to that first question: Why is empathy so hard? I'm gonna dri- I'm gonna drive it down even further. Right, because mm-hmm, you brought up mm-hmm. chins, you brought up transgender. We can talk about our LGBT, uh, all of the LGBTQ population. Why is it so hard for some Black men to be empathetic, particularly if we're talking about varied populations where heterosexual cisgender Black men, right, just haven't mm-hmm. done, right, just aren't a part of? Why is it so hard for them to have empathy? But you know, I don't think that's something unique to us. I think that's something that's dr- that's been driven into us as Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, we are we are raised to be to believe in the patriarchal cisgender traditional nuclear family with a husband and a wife. The husband as a hunter gatherer provider, the wife as a stay at home nurturer. We have these unconscious things that are programmed into us, and part of what life and maturity and good therapy is about is deconstructing some of those things that are programmed into us that aren't helpful anymore. It is not helpful to me as a black man to want white people to understand me and my struggle when I can't extend that to my LGBTQ brother. Say that, that, wait, that. Hold that. Say that again. I want people to hear that. <laughs> I want people to hear it's not, that. It's not useful for me to demand white people understand my struggle as a black man if I'm not willing to understand the struggle of an LGBTQ person. Wow. So you don't want equity, you want privilege, and you want special treatment. And we're not asking for privilege or special treatment. So the thing you are demanding of society for yourself, you need demand of yourself for society. Yes. That gets to my my talk about equity and empathy. Empathy. Because you can't do one without the other. You cannot. Lord have mercy, brother. Who is Dr. Marie (laughs) Scholes? Damn! (laughs) Man. Like, you know, yeah. geez, I thought we were having a, a, a nice, light conversation man, about something. I know you started about it, brother. Man, you started it, brother. <laughs> I'm just sitting here like, what? Yes, it, exactly. You know, and I, and I want my brothers to hear that because, you know, 20 years ago, I'm not the I'm I'm, I'm not the man who I am now, right? I wasn't thinking about equity. I wasn't thinking about empathy, right? I was thinking about why you hit on me, and that's a problem. And 
I'm angry about it. I'm trying to fight you to the point now Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. I try every day, right, to learn and to be an accomplice, right, to be an accomplice and an ally for my brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. right? And I don't always get it Mm -hmm. right, Doc. I don't always, but I want to make sure that people know I will stand as much as I can with the torch, right? The torch. I will stand back Mm -hmm. to back, whatever you need from me, right? But I wasn't that person, Mm -hmm. but I had to learn empathy. And, you know, you go back, right? You can't understand empathy unless you begin to go out and seek the lived experiences of someone else. You can't. Mm-hmm. You have to, and, and not just see, not just seek those experiences, but don't judge them through your lens. And that, and that's the part I really, really want people to get. Everything doesn't have to make sense to you and be for you. Everything doesn't have to make sense to you or be for you. Right, man, you're right. And, and, I, and I think when you start there, it makes it much easier to sort of get to the rest of that. Right. Yeah. So if you're listening and you haven't done the work. This is your roadmap right here, listening to this show. Brother, I, I did ask this question, but now I really, 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 really want to know. Who is Dr. Maurice Scholes? Where'd you come from, brother? Who's your family? <laughs> so who are your, who are your I, people? I was, who are my people? That's, what, that's such a South Louisiana question. I am <laughs> born at the old Lady the Lake Hospital in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My father and all his people are from the north side of Baton Rouge. My mother is originally from a small town in Central Florida called Sanford, which the Trayvon Martin thing uh, introduced yes, us to. But yeah. before that, it was a place nobody ever heard of halfway, halfway between Orlando and Daytona Beach. My parents met in college at Southern University in Baton Rouge because my dad came home from being in Vietnam and wanted to go to school. And my mother wanted to go to school as far away from the small town she grew up in as possible. And Baton Rouge was the furthest away from Stanford that her mom and dad would let her go. (laughs) So that's how the two two of them ended up there. And I attended my first classes at Southern in my mother's belly. We as a family (laughs) have lived, oh gosh, we've lived in Illinois, Kansas. And I went to high school in the D.C. area, Northern Virginia. I went to medical school after I went to college. And so I'm that rare blend of HBCU undergrad at Southern University. I'm a proud Jaguar. And I got my MD, PhD from Harvard. So I went from a public black school in the South to a private Ivy school in the Northeast. And well, that was some culture shock. (laughs) There it was. And I wanted everybody to know that what you heard, MD, PhD from Harvard. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. yes. So now my, my life is... Clinically, I see patients 20% of the time, and I do pediatric rehab, which means I care for kids with catastrophic injuries or birth defects. So I deal with vulnerable populations within vulnerable populations, right. disabled children. And then the other 80% of my job is I am a healthcare consultant in medical operations. And what that means is I help hospitals, health systems, individual doctors and doctors' practices put together their business model in a way that makes money, is sustainable, and actually utilizes the resources in their community. So in this time of COVID, what we're talking about, healthcare disparities, I bring my hat as a black man in medicine, I bring my hat as a practicing doctor, and I bring my hat as a hospital administrator type all together to talk about how all those different parts of the world come to lead us to where we are today. Right. So understanding all of that, understanding, bringing, bringing all of those hats together, how do we get, and this is, a, this is a softball question, but how do we get to this space where we're seeing so much health disparity 
in our communities. And I'm thinking about if if, mm-hmm. if, we, if we bring it home to right the context of New Orleans, yeah. where the life yep. disparity between by zip code here in New Orleans can be 25 mm-hmm. can be 25 years, Doc. Mm-hmm. How, how do we get here? One, and I'll, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time, but then how do we mm-hmm. move past it? How do we dispel these disparities? Yeah. So I think what's important to remember is that history exists and matters for a reason. There's a reason we all went and took history in school, and it wasn't to bore us to tears. It's to understand that very question, how we got here. We got here because this country was founded on slavery. This country was founded on us being treated as cattle and chattel. Then eventually we were three-fifths of a person. Then eventually we were counted as people. Then eventually we were given some rights, which were promptly taken back in the Jim Crow era style. And then we were... The society was advanced in spite of us. And so you can't look at that. So when you look at things like homeownership, homeownership, how does that relate to COVID? Well, if you own your house, you could be in control of how you stay there, who's staying there with you, what you keep in that place and what you don't keep in that place. It gives you power and autonomy. Well, homeownership rates are directly related to the fact that land was stolen from us within three or three generations ago. That's related to us in that we couldn't get loans to buy property until fairly recently in the life clock of of, of the country. And so all of these things tie together to say how we got here. Now, to get to the second part of your question, what does that mean we're going? Okay, What that means is I'd like for all of us to understand our history and not be ashamed of that. We weren't slaves. We were enslaved people. And we weren't broken, we managed to persist in spite of that brokenness. And that means we have the skills and the ability to survive worse and to survive better and to thrive. That's the hopeful thing I see forward. So I want the Black men listening to this show to understand I'm not a full-on hotel. We come from kings. <laughs> we come from a stock that survives. We came from a stock that survived in stock. spite of a world that was set to kill us. Right, right. And with that strength, we can do. We can go. We can go. You know, as I sit here, and, you know, as I think about the eloquence of your answers, and I think about our people. You know, as I traverse between the Esplanaded City Park and City Park, that has been for the last month. That's been the only places I've gone other than the grocery store. You know mm-hmm. what I've seen, Doc? Mm-hmm. I've seen an influx of people of color at the park mm-hmm. walking. Mm-hmm. exercising, right? A couple of my frat brothers, we were sitting six feet apart talking and we we noticed, we were like, we haven't seen this many people of color in the park walking mm-hmm. and exercising in a long time. Is COVID the wake-up call that some of us need to be, to, to be that resilient that we know we can be? So any disaster is a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. You know, any disaster, be it Hurricane Katrina from decade ago, be it this COVID pandemic now, be it a house fire that burns you and your family out in place you live. All of these these wake-up calls are big upheavals and changes. And sometimes they spur people to do good things, and sometimes they spur them to do bad things. What do I mean? If you've been cooped up in the house all day with people you ordinarily love and treasure very much, but you've had enough of them, you'll go do some stuff in City Park, <laughs> even if it's hot outside. And it's hot here. Who is hot? I know everybody thinks it's spring. It is hot here. <laughs> we are wearing shorts and t-shirts. It's yes, hot. Yes, um, it is. So, so to go outside and all this heat, humidity, and sunlight, yeah, you have some motivation. <laughs> you have some motivation. I mean, I, and I love you know, it. And I, I do love seeing this. And I, I have been questioning that. I was like, why am I seeing this now? Is this the wake-up call that we need? And mm-hmm. Yeah, that that we need. Because we're, we're seeing the health disparities. Asthma, cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease, 
diabetes, mm-hmm. high blood pressure, right? These are these are, and I hate to say ailments, but these are conditions that are that have been that have a propensity to inflict themselves on people of color and black folks, mm-hmm. and particularly black yeah. men who, who have the lowest life expectancy of any mm-hmm. any gender and race. And so I, I I want as a show, as a person who believes in you know finding and embracing the healthiest versions of yourselves, I want people to mm-hmm. think like this shouldn't just be the wake up call. Like okay, this is over. I need to take care of myself. What are the long-term tactics that I need to do as a person to make sure that I am healthy, that I live a long and prosperous mm-hmm. life, that I can, you know, I can propagate the race, I can procreate, mm-hmm. I, I can do all yeah, those things. Yeah. What are the suggestions that you that you might have? I have mixed thoughts on that, and and this is why. When you're in the midst of a crisis, and make no mistake, this is a crisis. Some people will use that time to reinvent themselves, find a new career, discover a hobby, anchor themselves to what's going to drive them into the next decade and next century. And other people, all they can manage is breathing in and out and blinking. And all and both of those extremes are okay. If all you can do during this crisis is just keep yourself reasonably bathed and clothed, and that's all you have in you, good job. Okay. And, and so I want to be really, really careful not to sort of be one of those people that says, use this time to come up with 10 things that make yourself better. So, so I, I put that out as a, as a caveat. Now, that being said, this wake-up call can lead to habit changes. For example, before Hurricane Katrina, I never texted. Never. I prefer to talk to people on the phone. I've always preferred talking over writing in any format. And texting was just something I never adopted or took, on, took hold to. But when Katrina came and all the cell phone towers were down in this area, texts were the only things that came through. So I had no choice but to text after Katrina. That habit that was forced on me has now become incorporated into a larger part of me. So maybe the folks you're seeing out there in the park, this will be their Hurricane Katrina making them text. And, and, and now that they've been made to text, they'll incorporate that and carry that forward. Wow. I love the metaphor. You know, this is this is could be their shift, their hurricane Katrina, their their ability to text. I, I brother, I love that. And as we think about that and, and ingraining it, I see this is also another way, right? Our hurricane Katrina moment, our COVID moment, where we have to find other ways to come together. We talked about New Orleans being the galvanizing force for many of us here in the city. But what I've also seen is that people are finding more nuanced ways to interact. So the park, city park, you're still seeing people sit six feet apart, right? They're walking mm-hmm. together six feet apart, right? They're still finding mm-hmm. ways to have community and to interact. And that's still, that's such a part of our physical and mental health, Doc, that we still mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. community. Because as you know, both of us are moving into the next phase of our lives. Community is so big. And the research around as you grow older, community is so you know, such a variable that either hinders or propels you to longevity by having strong community. And I want to make sure people understand that even though we're going through this time and you might be stuck in the house, there are still ways to connect with your people. I've had virtual happy hours. My team, uh, we meet all the time, you know, to talk about funny things. We did Drosaurus the other day as a, as a group. There are opportunities to still maintain your mental health during this period of time because mm-hmm. it, it's crucial. We're seeing depression. We're seeing suicidal thoughts. We're seeing mm-hmm. anxiety that that is rampant, right, because of this, you know, and we just want to make sure that you'll also understand this. Doc, tell me, you know, if we, we go back a little bit, you know, thinking about your road to this MD, PhD, like what was the catalyst for you to say, 
I'm going to leave Baton Rouge and take my talents <laughs> to Harvard University. You know, I will tell you my path. I've known I wanted to be a doctor since I was six. I don't know where that came from because I didn't have a family physician growing up. We went to the free health clinic. I don't have any doctors in my family. By doctors, I mean physicians. So I don't know where that came from. It's just something I wanted to do. But I was fairly ignorant about the process. Like when I was in college, I don't know that I understood the difference between a medical school student, someone doing a sub-I as a medical student, an intern, a resident, a fellow, or an attendant. All those layers, I, did, I just knew that they were doctors at some point on the path. So when I was in college, I looked at a program on PBS, and it was called So You Want to Be a Doctor. And it followed a group of Harvard medical students around as they navigated a new curriculum that the school had instituted based on problem learning as opposed to didactic. So rather than learning medical school in a big lecture hall where somebody's telling you, you learn medicine in small groups discussing through a case. Looking at that program on PBS is what introduced me to Harvard Med School and made me apply. And so I say to people, you never know what in life is going to be the thing that gets you over. Mm. The thing that, that introduced me to Harvard Med School was a random program I watched on PBS. The thing that got me my fellowship in pediatric rehab medicine when there were only six training programs taking one person to be across the country was when I showed up for my interview that day, I was observing in clinic and the interpreter Spanish interpreter did not show up for the patient in a timely fashion. And I interpreted that clinic visit. So I don't know if that fellowship picked me because I'm an Harvard MD, PhD, and I interviewed well, or they figured out, wow, this dude's useful and speaks another language. And, and I never could have known that when I was taking those classes in high school and college. So I say to people listening to this program, you never know what's important. So do it all if it feels good to you. Again, I'm having one of those moments, those Michael Jordan moments. <laughs> <laughs> Maurice, your story is just so amazing. And, and, and I'm, I'm thinking, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, as people are hearing this, right, mm -hmm. that they may assume that be, all the success that you had, that you came from a level of privilege. Would you say that you came from a level of privilege that the experiences that your parents gave you, the mm -hmm. high schools that Southern gave mm -hmm. you, propelled you mm -hmm. to be as successful? Or were there other things, other motivators that got you to this? Well, you know, I had... I have a privilege of having a, a great family that's not too crazy. They're crazy, but not <laughs> crazy enough to destabilize me. And and and, I, and I'm grateful for that. I am I'm the privilege that my my mother's parents are both college educated. So having two college educated grandparents is a privilege. So understanding the value of college, specifically an HBCU college experience, was something I was a third generation of doing. So yeah, there's privilege in that. There's privilege in understanding. And I experienced that when I switched over and went to med school because an easy example I can give is that when I started medical school, I did, they have a thing where you go around to this product fair and you buy all the things that you need to put in your medical bag for when you learn how to do taste exams and stuff. And there was, this, there was a station for a stethoscope, the thing that you use to listen to somebody's heart breathe and, and listen to them breathe. Well, I had never seen a stethoscope up close. I didn't know the difference between a, a fancy one and a terrible one. So I bought the cheapest stethoscope they had at the table. Well, as it turns out, I couldn't hear anything with that stethoscope. <laughs> and I had to come back later and buy the expensive one. And so rather than me spending money once on that purchase, which I would have known had somebody ever advised me, I actually spent 
twice on that purchase. And I think that story really illustrates the need for and the value of mentoring and mentorship. Had I done a better job of finding a mentor and being mentored, I wouldn't have wasted my money. Right. Because somebody would have been able to tell me, don't buy that cheap stethoscope. Don't buy that Tyco. <laughs> you can't hear nothing in Tyco. It's like a Fisher Price stethoscope. And you'll flunk all your classes because you can't hear nothing. Everybody else hears the number, you don't hear nothing but the clothes wrestling. Right. Buy the litany. Yeah, it's 40% more expensive, but you'll be able to hear stuff. Everything. And we're done. And, and, and I, I say that to, to, to really encourage people to say, yes, I have my privilege and I'm using my privilege to elevate myself and people that are important to me. That's what I'm doing. And there are other ways that I am not privileged at all. And, and, and in ways I'm not privileged to, to use your phrase, what can I do to not be victimized by that or just sort of oppressed by that enough alone? You connect with people and you find mentors. Yes. And it doesn't matter what age or what point you are in your career arc. You always can use a mentor. It's so powerful that you say that. And I, and I love that you brought that up is that even at our stage of the game, brother, we can, we can still be mentored, but we also, mm -hmm. we have a, we have a job to do as people who have attained a certain level of education and status in life. Right. What mm -hmm. I have learned is that our young brothers are itching for mentorship. The brothers, mm -hmm. who, the mm -hmm. young brothers who are in my fellowship at Camelback Ventures, right? Just listening to them and th them seeking out like, brother, we, we, we just want to talk to you, right? We're not only experiencing mm -hmm. things as building ventures as entrepreneurs, but we are also experiencing things as black men that we need some help how to navigate, right? And they're successful. They're, they're successful, but they're saying like, we don't, I can't find anybody to mentor me. And so what mm -hmm. I'm employing, because what you're saying, right, at every stage of the game, we need to be able to pick up the phone, right, go to somebody's house, mm -hmm. right, get on a plane and say, mm -hmm. hey, brother or sister, whoever, I need to talk. Help I, need, me. I need some help, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We need to be able to navigate this. And I think that we hopefully need to do more of that on a regular basis. So I, re I, re I can think of numerous mentors that I've had during life, right, that mm -hmm. have helped me, helped mm -hmm. me get to that path. And you just spoke how if you had had a mentor during that period of time, but talk to me about probably one of your greatest mentors and how they impacted your life. So because I've always been a rare bird, I'm an MD PhD, not an MD or PhD. I do pediatric rehab and there are less than 250 of us, you know, board certified in this field in the entire country. Because I am a black man in medicine, because I am an Ivy League graduate that started at the HBCU, I always found myself feeling like I was neither fish nor fowl. I was not an MD or a PhD. I was not a black guy or uh, just a person. I was a Maurice. So what I really adopted in the mentorship process was I didn't look for one person to be like end all be all. So I don't have a person that really was revolutionary and overarching. I have pieces of several folks. Like I love how my mom taught me to be practical. And that no matter how you feel, no matter what you'd like, the trains have to run on time and the bills have to be paid. Mm. I love that that mentorship from my mother was balanced by my father, who is a huge dreamer. There is no dream bigger than the one that he can come up with in his head. There is no limit to, to the sky that you can see and breathe into and shoot up into. Um, and, and those two things were important to not make me one or the other. Similarly, I am so moved and honored by people like Ron Arkey, who was the head of my society when I was in medical school, 
who saw me. And as a black man in medicine, too often you're hyper-visible for all the terrible things and completely invisible for all the things that matter. And by invisible, people don't know you as a person. They don't know what makes you laugh. They don't know what makes you happy. They don't know about your fears. Ron Arkey was one of the first white people I worked with and worked around closely and depended on that actually saw me as a person. Mm. So that was very pivotal to me. Empathy. That's what I keep thinking. Empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was empathetic. Have you wondered the first times I felt it? Yeah. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing, man. And yeah, it's, it mentorship when in in its right form can propel you. And I'm glad that you talked about your mother and father because my mother and father just celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary on Saturday. Mine just had 50 last month. It's, it, we were all supposed to be in South Africa, but the COVID got in the way. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, I hate. You know, Maurice, as a child, I would thumb through the pages of my mother and father's wedding album. For some reason, I, it, it brought mm-hmm. me joy to see the smile on my, my mother's face, the joy in my father. My father has Alzheimer's now. My mother is his mm-hmm. primary primary caregiver he he's doing he's doing Mm -hmm. all right and Mm -hmm. but to see the continued love and joy that they have for each other but my father taught me so much he was my first mentor and him and my mother i remember you know asking him for a dollar as a young man uh, maurice and he's saying sure you can have a dollar from me but you're gonna pay me back (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i remember going to my mother mom can i have a dollar from you sure baby she never asked for that money back so you knew where i was going (laughs) you knew where i was going to get my dollar absolutely exactly but over the years the mentorship that my father gave me has allowed me to buy homes to buy invest in stocks to make sure that i don't have debt that mentorship around money that he made sure that if I borrowed that dollar, I was going to pay it back. He was instilling those values. And like you said, the, the values that our parents have instilled in us allow us to be the men who we are and to accept mentorship in other forms. But they are the foundations of that. Dear brother, our time is, is coming to a close. And what I like to ask, you know, formally is that if you had an opportunity to write a letter, right, or to say a few mm-hmm. words to your younger self, right? Mm-hmm. What would you say? I would say you have to work on doing the things you're not good at, Maurice. You have to work on being patient and you have to work on giving yourself grace. Patience is required because things are not going to flow and go the way you think they should logically or based on merit. They're going to go the way they go. And you just have to be patient enough to see that through to the end. The second part to that in terms of being great, giving grace to yourself We are raised as Southern children, as Black people, to call Mr., Miss, Mrs., use appropriate titles like doctor, and to give people deference and grace, even if they're not decent human beings and don't probably deserve it. But we never are told to give that same deference and grace to ourselves. So when you do your best and come up short, and when you do the analysis later, you say, oh my gosh, this would have been completely different if I had just dot, dot, dot. And then you proceed to tear yourself apart because of that thing that you should have done differently. You know, stop and give yourself grace because that's going to save you and give you the bandwidth to put together the next proposal, which might be successful. Right. That's what I tell my younger self. I probably wouldn't listen. (laughs) (laughs) Younger younger me, he was tough to give advice to. The older me is tough to get advice to. That's the interesting thing. Probably just... We hide it under more grace. Yeah, I hope so. But I, I love that. I love both parts. But I, 
I'm extremely taken to the last part to show yourself grace. We don't. I'm extremely hard on myself. I didn't know I was a perfectionist till I did till I knew I was a perfectionist. And mm-hmm. giving giving myself grace. I talk about failure a lot and that failure is the is the ground floor of growth and that if you can't fail, mm-hmm. you allow yourself to fail and give yourself grace in failure. You will not mm-hmm. grow. Right. And I've, uh, I, mm-hmm. I'm struggling even at 40, uh, uh, almost 49 to give myself grace and getting out of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate the, the nudge and bringing that forward that mm-hmm. give, give yourself grace. Right. You're not especially always- in these times of COVID, man, especially mm-hmm. in these times of COVID. Right now, everybody is grieving. Mm-hmm. We're grieving the loss of a loved one that died. We're grieving the loss of our autonomy. We're grieving the loss of the life that we used to live and the things we used to bring us joy. We're grieving the abrupt change of everything in our world. And so that little thing in the back of your mind that you can't put your finger on that makes you extra crabby or makes you extra emotional or makes you extra snappy or extra whatever, that is mourning and that's grief. And if you never give yourself the grace to move through that, you don't process it. And you come out of this terrible, terrible wounding process without the chance to even diagnose and heal. And that's the thing. I love that you you end this conversation around our grief. And we started the mm-hmm. conversation around us missing those streets in New Orleans and mm-hmm. grieving that time, grieving the ability to mm-hmm. sip on that Sazerac or to hear mm-hmm. the soul, to hear the soul rebels or the brassaholics on Frenchman, Ooh, yeah. yeah, on Frenchman Street to be at. Mm-hmm. Bayou Beer Garden to hang out on Friday night to get mm-hmm. some craw- it's crawfish season still you know what I'm saying yeah. and mm-hmm. the ability to congregate with friends we are grieving that but hopefully as we know there will be a rebirth of New Orleans coming soon and, and, and in the meantime we're gonna make do I, I credit my friends the porch crew this past Friday on Good Friday we had a Good Friday gala where all of us put on tuxedos gowns and I wore crowns and got together virtually and raise the toast. I had to put on good clothes in a week. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt good to put that tuxedo on and see everybody else looking beautiful on that screen. That's not how I want to do it, but that was that, that was good. Yeah, that was good. That was good. You know, dear brother, I, I didn't shave my bald head for two weeks. I hadn't seen that much hair on my head in a long time. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> so we are, we are coming back. Dr. Maurice Scholes, MD, PhD, mm-hmm. Principal, Scholes Consultant. Thank you so much for gracing the What's Your Revolution show and allowing me to have my first Michael Jordan, <laughs> my Michael Jordan <laughs> effect on this show. I've had a lot of guests, right? I've had a lot of people on this show, like stars, comedians, authors, right? You name it. This right here is the show. <laughs> I will listen to time oh. and time again, dear brother. Thank you so much for bringing your eloquence and your, mm-hmm. how do I want to say, your eloquence and your intelligence to this show. It is unmatched. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. Unsurpassed. Now, I thank you. And to all my listeners, I hope that you stay healthy and safe, that we are praying for you, that we are wishing grace for you, right? That we come out of this stronger and that we come out of this together more equitable and more empathetic, the words of Dr. Maurice Scholes. We hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful week, and I ask that you always, always be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution, everyone? Take care, and we'll talk to you soon.
Peace.